Well, as I said, it's good to be with you. Uh, so far in our exposition of John 14, we have looked at four of the promises Jesus gave to his troubled disciples in the upper room, immediately following or during the Last Supper. We've looked at the promise of his spiritual presence after he returns to the Father in verse 1. We looked at the promise of a prepared place for them, for the disciples in his Father's house, verses 2 through 4. Uh, we looked at the promise of the right path to the Father's house, which is in heaven, verses 5 through 11. And we looked at the promise of forward progress, how the gospel will continue after Jesus uh, returns to the Father in verse 12. After assuring the disciples that His cause would not suffer because of His return to the Father, Jesus informs the disciples of the importance of staying connected to Him through prayer. Now, Jesus did not live His short life in the immediate presence of His Father. He lived here on earth with us. In other words, He stepped out of the immediate, and if you want to call it physical, it's hard to say that because God doesn't have a physical body, but in a way, when Jesus stepped out of heaven, He stepped out of the literal immediate presence of the Father, and the Father resides in heaven. Jesus even spoke of His Father's house right back in verses 3 and 4. So you get the idea that Jesus kind of leaves the Father's house and leaves the immediate presence of the Father. And so because of this distance, and you might want to call it a long-distance relationship, but that's kind of ridiculous because God is omnipresent. But in a sense, there is distance between them in a physical sense. And because of this, Jesus understood what it was like to leave the immediate presence of God and to live at a distance from Him. Jesus understood what that was like, at least as a human being, as a man. He understood. And, and, and you notice during Jesus' ministry, how frequently and often he prayed. I mean, he was a man of prayer. He prayed all of the time. And this is how he stayed spiritually connected to his Father, and it was through prayer. Now, I'm speaking of him in his incarnation as a man. So Jesus, as a man, lives at a distance from the Father, in a sense, and stays connected to him through prayers, maintains a spiritual connection to him through prayer. And this is literally why we see him praying all the time in the gospel. Some would say, well, he was praying for the power to work miracles. Jesus didn't need to have God give him power to perform miracles. He prayed consistently and continually to maintain communion with the Father. As a man, Jesus didn't want to live one second apart from his heavenly Father. And so he spent a lot of time in prayer. So he understood what it was like to live a spiritual, prayerful, uh, in the spiritual and prayerful presence of the Father. And in a similar way, the disciples were about to experience the same phenomenon, were they not? Jesus was about to physically leave them. The physical presence of Jesus is about to leave the earth. And in this next section, Jesus reveals how the disciples can remain connected to Him through prayer, just as He had done with the Father. They have lived in the physical presence of Jesus for three years. There's nothing, they've never experienced anything like it. They were 
terrified and horrified by the idea of not living in his physical presence, but they were going to have to get used to not living in his physical presence. They were going to have to learn to live prayerful lives, to stay connected to Jesus, to commune with him through prayer, and obviously through the helper whom Jesus would send on Pentecost. So in this text, he's about to leave, and, and he reveals how they can remain connected to him through prayer, just as he had maintained a strong spiritual relationship with the Father through prayer. But the immediate context gives this section a far broader meaning. It has to do with the disciples doing the works Jesus did, and even greater works after he is physically gone, verse 12. That is the immediate context, and it's the immediate context that gives verses 13 and 14 their meaning. So this call to prayer from Jesus to his disciples has ministerial implications or ministry implications, and we're going to focus primarily on them, the ministerial implications more so than the relational implications, because that's precisely what Jesus focuses on here. Jesus has told them they're going to do works and even greater works, and now he's telling them that they need to stay connected to him through prayer. So the primary focus is ministerial implication, not relational. Have you ever noticed, if you've ever read through the Gospels, have you ever noticed how Jesus prayed before he performed miracles? We don't see him doing this every time he performs a miracle. I think I recently read, again, went back through the story of him calming the storm. The storm was thrashing the boat. The disciples were terrified. He didn't stop and pray and then call the storm to cease. He just called it to cease. But in so many instances, we see Jesus stop to pray before he actually performs a sign or wonder. He did this, and we see it in John 6.11. We see it in John 11.41, instances like where he Uh, Before he feeds the 5,000 men, he prays and gives thanks to the Father and then multiplies the fish and the loaves. So we see that in the Gospels. So what I'm telling you is that the disciples had witnessed him do this on several occasions. They had seen him and heard him pray to the Father before he performed signs or wonders. I'm even thinking of Lazarus, how he prayed before he called Lazarus out of the tomb. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard my prayer. He prays a prayer of gratitude. In fact, he prayed a prayer of gratitude before he multiplied the bread. His prayers consisted of thanksgiving. But the point is, Jesus basically set an example for the disciples. Now he is telling them to follow his example. You're going to go out and you're going to do works, and you're going to do even greater works. You're going to be involved in the spreading of the gospel. I prayed before I worked, and I want you to do the same thing. This is what Jesus is conveying in this text. The question becomes, and I'm going to be asking a lot of questions and answering them, why must the disciples pray before they do the works Jesus did and the greater works? Why must they pray? Why is Jesus telling them that they have to have a prayer life and stay connected to Him in prayer? Why is it? Well, first, prayer connects the work they were about to do, right? They're about to perform a miracle. It connects the work they were about to do to the one who sent them. Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus is not going to be with them physically. They've gone everywhere with Jesus, and He performs miracles all the time, and He prays. They've watched this. Now they're going to be the ones out doing the miracles. 
And when they pray before they actually perform a sign or wonder, because these apostles were endowed with this ability, this particular group, 15 men total, I've told you, according to the New Testament, they must pray so that they can connect what they're about to do to Jesus. Because at the end of the day, the miracle serves the purposes of the Lord. It's about revealing Him and authenticating the gospel and bringing Him glory. Now, this is similar to why Jesus prayed before He worked. He desired to connect what He was about to do, the miracle He was about to perform, to the one who sent Him, to the Father, because Jesus came to glorify the Father. It was essential that Jesus pray before He performed a miracle. Why? Because He needed the power? No, because He wanted everyone around there to know that He was doing it for the Father and He'd been sent by the Father. It's imperative that Jesus establish that link and connection between Him and the Father. That authenticates who He is. So the first reason is so that they can, they pray before they perform a sign, wonder so that they can connect or link what they're about to do to Jesus, who's the point of their ministry. Second reason that they must do this, prayer connects them to the one who causes forward progress, to Jesus. Prayer connects them to the source of power. Unlike Jesus, they weren't omnipotent. They couldn't just do what they wanted. They have to call upon the Lord for power at any given moment. And so by praying before they perform a sign, it connects them to the one who can give them the power to do it. Makes sense, right? I like what A.W. Pink wrote. He said, prayer was all essential if they were to do these greater works. He's saying, look, if they didn't stop to pray before they go out to do something, they're not going to have the power to do it. They're not going to be able to tie it to Jesus or anything. Nothing's going to happen if they just move from one side or wonder to the next. These men do not have the power in the way that Jesus did. They've got to call upon Him to have the power. So prayer would become a way for the disciples to connect the miracles they were about to perform to the one who sent them, and it would connect them to the one who causes forward progress, who gives the power to perform the signs and wonders to authenticate the gospel. Amen? This is why it's essential that they pray before they do anything, before their feet touch the ground every morning. Now, word of warning. Some folks take this particular section and they twist it into a kind of prayer carte blanche. They run hog wild crazy with this text. Banana land crazy. They say that verses 13 and 14 teach that God has given Believers, a blank check to be used however they desire. The only requirement is that they pray in Jesus' name. There are a multitude of people within the quote-unquote church that claim that that's precisely what Jesus is teaching. That we all have this ability to get whatever we want as long as we hang in Jesus' name on the end of our prayers. Now R.C. Sproul wrote something valuable here. He said, there are those in the church who have come to the conclusion that these statements are absolute. They think that a Christian may ask for anything he would like to have as long as he adds, in Jesus' name I pray, after his request, God will most certainly do what he asks him to do. This interpretation of these verses is the basis for the what? The name it and claim it movement throughout the church. How many of you are familiar with the name it and claim it movement? Well, you just name it and then hang, the, hang in Jesus' name on the end of that prayer, and you can claim it. It's as good as done. Cadillac Escalade in Jesus' name. Where's my Escalade? I keep getting a Sienna. It's not working. 
And I would just say that this kind of interpretation of this text is absolutely absurd. It's totally absurd. It's the work of science, uh, you know, uh, science fiction. In fact, it's the work of Satan. These verses are placed within a specific context which restricts the meaning. The meaning is restrictive. It's restricted by the context, by verse 12. It is not a prayer carte blanche. It is not a blank check. Jesus will not answer in the affirmative every prayer that is offered in His name. Shall I repeat that for you? Jesus will not answer in the affirmative every prayer that is offered in His name. Should we go for three? I think I'm going to beat a dead horse here. But some of you have come out of this movement. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you're probably wondering why people have taught you this and you keep doing this, but it's not working. Because Jesus will not answer in the affirmative every prayer that is offered in His name. Should we go for four? Think about it. If this were true, people I know and love would not have died from cancer. They would have been healed because I prayed for them to be healed in the name of Jesus. Why did my mother-in-law die? Why have so many people that I know, and I didn't actually pray for my mother-in-law because I wasn't saved then, not a good example, but my wife certainly prayed for her mom in Jesus' name. Why is it that so many people that we prayed for in Jesus' name were not healed? Did not make it. Passed away. Um, if this were true, then Jesus would have already returned. Because I have prayed for His return in His name more times than I can count, especially the day after every election for about 25, 30 years. Yeah, I even did it after Trump was elected, believe it or not. We needed some in Jesus' name right after He took office just because of His hair. Lord, fix that hair in Jesus' name. It still hasn't happened yet. It's still getting blown around by the wind. If this were true, and this might sting a little bit, some of our church family members would have better attendance records because I have prayed for this in Jesus' name almost every week for nearly seven years. I could say the same thing about some of your giving. It's not happening. Now, we must understand that these verses do contain the fifth promise, the promise of answered prayer. But if we are ignorant of how it actually works, like the name it and claim it folks and so many others, we will not experience it. We will not see it manifest. We will not see it happen. We will not see our prayers answered in the affirmative. And my goal this morning, with the help of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> total dependence upon the Holy Spirit, is to provide us with an accurate exegesis of the text so that we are not ignorant of Jesus' instructions or promise, so that we are not kept from experiencing this promise. Amen? We're going to learn what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And it's vastly different from just tacking that onto the end of your prayer. It's extraordinarily different. In fact, I think some of your minds will be blown because mine was as I was putting this together. Now let's pick it up at verse 13a. That's where we left off two weeks ago. I praise the Lord for Cameron and how he preached last week. That was a phenomenal sermon. And I told him afterwards, he is not permitted to cry in the pulpit. That is my job. <laughs> he said, I can't help it. 13a, 
Listen to what Jesus says. And here's where people go crazy. Wow, look at this. It's a free-for-all. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Boy, sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds like a prayer card blanche. Sounds like a blank check. Now, I want to analyze the words and phrases. I want to break it down. And I want to begin with the word whatever. Whatever. What does whatever refer to here? Because it sounds like a very universal, open invitation kind of word, right? Whatever seems to mean anything and everything. Well, in this context, it refers to whatever the disciples need to carry out their mission. (laughs) It's specific to them right here. What is their mission? Their mission is to, once Jesus leaves, right, and they get the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Their mission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, so on and so forth, right? Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Mark 16, 15. That's the mission. Whatever they need to carry out their gospel mission is what Jesus is referring to. Well, what would they need to carry out their mission? Well, they might need wisdom, right? They might need some power, maybe some protection, maybe courage, maybe direction. Now, these things all fall under the banner of whatever. Think of it like this. The Father provided whatever Jesus needed to carry out His mission. In a similar way, Jesus offered to continue to provide whatever the disciples needed for their mission. So whatever pertains to their mission, you need strength, I'll give it to you. You need power to perform a miracle, I'll give it to you. What do you need? Whatever you need, voice it to me. And there's some specificity to it here. There are a couple stipulations. Next phrase, you ask. Okay, you ask means you come to me and you ask me. The disciples what? They must be willing to humble themselves and ask or pray for whatever they need. There's a submission aspect to here. We don't have these abilities and we're lacking in these things because we're inferior and we need to go to the superior one, humble ourselves and pray to him and ask for what we need. So there's a humble aspect to this situation here. You humble yourselves and you pray. As I said, if they need wisdom, they can pray for it. If they need power to perform a work, a miracle, they, that will authenticate the gospel they've been preaching, they can pray for it. If they need protection from the authorities or persecutors, they can ask Jesus for it. They can pray for it. If they need courage to take a stand, they can pray for it. They need direction for where to take the gospel next. And We see the Apostle Paul doing this before he goes north. They can just pray for it. They can call upon Jesus and, and petition Him for whatever they need to make forward progress. Jesus basically tells them, if you need something while you're out there spreading the gospel, ask me and I will listen. Humble yourselves and pray to me. Seek me. I will hear you. There is another stipulation in the next phrase, and the next phrase is, in my name It is not enough for the disciples to pray for whatever they need. They must pray in Jesus' name. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? 
As I said earlier, some say that it has to do with simply adding in Jesus' name to the end of our prayers. I pray for world peace in Jesus' name. Amen. And the Middle East is still exploding in violence. And so is our country. What's going on? It's not working. That's because that's not what it means. It's not what the Lord meant here. Far from it. And I'm going to tell you what it means. Praying in Jesus' name has to do with three things. And these are critical things that you need to write down. You need to remember this stuff. Maybe you don't need to write them down because you've got an awesome memory. I would have to write it down in triplicate to keep it. Somebody will ask me what I preached on next week, I'll, you know, today, and I'll say I have no idea. The memory is just not good, and the older you get, the worse it gets. But write these things down. Praying in Jesus' name has to do with three things. This is the meat of the sermon, by the way. First, it has to do with praying in a way that is consistent with who Jesus is. Praying in Jesus' name has to do with praying in a way that is consistent with who Jesus is. And I'm going to tell you who he isn't, and I'm going to tell you who he is in a second here. Let me tell you who he isn't. He is not a magic genie who wants to shower you with temporal blessings. And the name it and claim it folks treat him like a big magic genie in the sky, and they rub their little lamp and then call upon him and hang in his name on the end of their prayers, expecting him just to do whatever it is the heck they want. He is not a magic genie. He is not a guru who wants to guide us toward inner happiness and nirvana. He's none of that. He's not a genie. He's not a guru. He's none of that. If you pray in his name and you're treating him as such, it's not right. Let me, let me describe who He is for you, okay? He is the Word become flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is Messiah. He is the Bridegroom. He is the living water. He is I Am. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the true vine. He is our prophet, priest, and king. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the sovereign Lord of all. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he is the alpha and the omega. Praying in a way that is inconsistent with who Jesus is, is both irreverent and disrespectful, which basically mean the same thing. Treating Him in a fashion that is foreign to who He actually is, as I've described, and He is so much more, is irreverent. It's, it's unrighteous. And I, and I think that I, I can speak on behalf of all of humanity and the Lord Himself. No one likes to be treated in a condescending or patronizing manner, right? You don't like to be condescended to. You don't like to be patronized. Do you like to be treated in that way, in that fashion, to be treated in such a way that doesn't reflect who you are? No, you hate that. That bothers you. Well, it bothers Jesus when it's done to Him. He is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. He is to be worshipped as God. Not treated like a, 
like a cosmic doorman or bellhop or valet. So so praying in Jesus' name firstly has to do with praying in a way that is consistent with who he is. Treat him with respect and admiration. Be humble when you come to him. Don't just zip off your request like he's a, a genie. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is God. I think in some weird, twisted way, people are okay with treating the Father as such, but not the Son, and certainly not the Holy Spirit, who's blasphemed throughout this town when people are ascribing things to Him that He's not doing. It's disgusting. Second, praying in Jesus' name has to do with praying in a way that is consistent with what Jesus did. What did He do? As I call out His work to you, be humbled. He earned our righteousness through perfect obedience to God's law. I say this almost on a weekly basis. All of our righteousness in this room doesn't amount to anything. When we're trying to earn our way to Him in our fallenness through good deeds, there are no good deeds. There is no earning. There is no righteousness. He came to obey God's law perfectly because we can't do it. And without that righteousness, we're sunk. And He came and did that for us. He earned our righteousness through perfect obedience to God's law. He did what we could never do. He paid our ransom. He absorbed the wrath of God. He atoned for our sins through His death on the cross. He did for us what we could never do. Someone once asked, how could the death of one man pay the penalty for a multitude of men. Do you know why? Because that man was infinitely worth more than all men. That's how. His blood was worth more than all blood combined forever. What else did he do? He was buried in a tomb to settle our account. He rose from the dead three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for our justification, for our own future resurrection. If you're in Christ, you will be raised as He was raised. I said it. i say it again. Jesus came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves, what false religion will never do for us, what earning will never do for us. What Buddha, Mohammed, none of them. And praying in a way that is inconsistent with what he did devalues his achievements and cheapens his priceless work. Third, I'm getting fired up here a little bit. My wife's looking at me like, yeah, just back it off a little bit. Calm down a little bit. He had too much coffee. If I sound like I'm hollering, believe me, I'm hollering at myself. Third, 
Praying in Jesus' name has to do with praying in a way that is consistent with what He is doing on earth now. Do you know how you can render the phrase, in my name? You may not have known this, but it can be rendered as, for my sake. Praying in the name of Jesus means praying for His sake. A.W. Pink again put it like this, to pray in Jesus' name is to seek what He seeks, to promote what He has has at heart. What is Jesus doing on earth? He is saving His people through the preaching of the gospel, through the regenerating presence and power of the Holy Spirit. He's effectually calling His people and causing them through the Holy Spirit, to be born again every day. He's saving people every day. His people, He's effectually calling them. He is not only saving lost people that are His people, adding them to the church, He is sanctifying His people through the means of grace and through, believe it or not, their experiences, good, bad, and ugly. In other words, he's taking what they're going through and he's taking the means of grace that have been prescribed, the preaching of the word and prayer and communion and baptism. He's taking all of that stuff and he's, he's offered those things and given those things to his people when they engage in those things and as they go through things, he's taking them and molding them and shaping them, pruning them. He's making them like him. This is what he's doing on earth. He's doing this now. And praying in a way that is inconsistent with what Jesus is doing on earth seems selfish to me. It's selfish of me when I pray to Him in a way that is inconsistent with what He's doing, when I am constantly praying to Him in a consistent manner with what I'm doing or with what I want to do. And most frequently, these things have nothing to do with the mission. How absurd. Okay, this is not to, not to say that Jesus doesn't have time or a desire to focus on our issues and help us with this or that. He has both time and desire. He is our great high priest. He has an active, right now in the world, he has an active ongoing ministry with his people. He meets our needs. He seeks to meet our needs. He listens to us. He listens to our struggles. I'm not telling you that He doesn't do that. But we mustn't forget the big picture. The fact that He is building His church. The fact that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We get so wrapped up in our own little little universe that we've created. It doesn't have anything to do with His mission. So we're constantly praying in a way that is inconsistent with what He's actually doing in terms of His mission. And we forget that He has commissioned us, His people, to play a small part in this grand global work right here. Right here. Now it's time for the crescendo. 
if the disciples pray in Jesus' name, which has to do with praying in a way that is consistent with who He is, consistent with what He did for them, think of the gospel, and consistent with what He is doing on earth, they could bank on Jesus answering their prayers in the affirmative, granting their requests. How could they be certain that Jesus would do this for them? Look at the next phrase. Four simple words. This I will do. It's that simple. This is the promise of answered prayer. Another question arises. Why has Jesus promised to answer prayers that are offered in His name as I've described? Well, we've already established one reason. Because He is committed to His cause, right? This is reflected in His offer to supply whatever the disciples need to carry out their mission, the spreading of the gospel, making disciples, and so on. That's the cause of Christ. He says, look, I promise to do these things for you if you pray in my name because I want the mission to go forward. It's going to go forward. In fact, it'll go forward whether you pray in my name or not because I'm sovereign and I'm going to do it, but that's what I want you to do. So, why? Because he's committed to his cause. It's reflected in that offer to supply what they need. Making disciples and so on. And then in the second half of verse 13, we see another reason. Look at 13b with me. Here's the big one. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. There's a second reason why. Jesus promised to answer prayers that are offered in His name because it brings the Father glory. How does it bring the Father glory? Well, if Jesus is glorified when believers pray in His name and Jesus is one with the Father, John 10.30, John 14.11 wouldn't the Father also receive glory through the granting of these prayers? Of course. Absolutely. Think of it like this. When a believer prays in a way that is consistent with the person and work of Jesus, Jesus is glorified and the Father is glorified. Why? Because they are one. This is what Jesus has been telling us for several chapters now that He is one with the Father. And I would venture to say that the Son and the Father are most glorified when believers pray in a way that is consistent with Jesus' person and work. I don't think there's anything that brings, I don't think there's anything that brings the Trinity more glory than when we pray in a way that is consistent with who Jesus is, consistent with what He did, consistent with what He is doing. The Father has it has, has set this whole plan up and orchestrated this whole thing and that every bit of praise and glory that goes to Jesus redounds in His own praise and glory and for the Spirit. Now let's look at our last verse, verse 14. Jesus continues to tell them, He says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 
So this is just a repeat of 13a, just rephrased. Why did he repeat himself? Well, why did he say truly, truly <laughs> so many times in John's gospel? Because what he was about to say following the truly, truly was of double importance. Well, here he, he doesn't use a truly, truly. He just restates what he already stated. I would say this. He repeated what he said in verse 13a because he wanted his disciples to know for sure that he really meant business. That he is truly willing to give them whatever they need to carry out their mission if they will simply humble themselves and pray in his name. Praying in his name is what? In a consistent manner with who he is and what he did and what he's doing. I'm going to read a paraphrase of verses 13 and 14. That I think it really captures what Jesus is, it captures the meaning of what Jesus said here or his message to his disciples. And this comes from the message. I'm not a big fan of that paraphrase. It, it lightens a few types of sins in, this, in the scripture, which is ridiculous. But I think that it nails this text. This is how I would paraphrase it. And this is, again, think of Jesus speaking to them. Whatever you request, along the lines of who I am and what I am doing, I'll do it. That's how the Father will be seen for who He is in the Son. I mean it. Whatever you request in this way, I'll do. I think that's a great paraphrase of 13 and 14. And here's what's just so extraordinary about this promise. You flip over to Acts 28.8. Go ahead and do it. You got a Bible? Flip over to Acts 28.8. Acts 28.8. In this particular text, you see the Apostle Paul in Malta or on the island of Malta. In Acts 28.8, you see the Apostle Paul, what is he doing here? He's following Jesus' instructions, and we see Jesus making good on his promise, okay? This is, this is like nuts and bolts here. This is what Jesus told the disciples who were apostles, this is it. This is the promise. This is one of them who came into the fold later on, obeying it and seeing action. It says... It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. This is not something that you want to get. And look at what it says. It says, and Paul, speaking of the apostle Paul, visited him, visited him, and what did he do? He prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. Boom. Now, we see the apostle Peter doing this, and he was actually in the room. We see this happening over and over in the book of Acts, and I wanted to give you this display of it. This is someone who knew the instruction of Jesus, who had either learned it through this account, or Jesus revealed it to him because Paul spent a lot of time with Jesus before he actually went out and did ministry. And this is a guy who gets the instruction and obeys the word of the Lord 
And he goes out and he's, he's establishing the gospel throughout Rome and he, he shipwrecks on Malta and he remembers this guy needs to be healed. This is an opportunity for the gospel to take effect here on Malta, which is an unreached people. And he prays before he lays a hand on the man. In Jesus' name, he must have prayed, in Jesus' name, give me the power to heal this man so that your cause can move forward among these natives on this island. He prays something to that effect. Bam, he has the power. He lays hands on him. The guy doesn't have dysentery anymore. Praise the Lord. This is it. And you see this played out in the book of Acts over and over. Over and over. And now I say closing, and you're thinking, wow, it's way early for you to be closing. Well, my closing stuff is pretty long. It's three pages. <laughs> I hear somebody say, oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's okay, because here's where I'm going to do a real Q&A. Because if you're like me, you've heard what I've said, and now you've got a few questions. I had questions, and I had to answer my own questions because I was a bit confused about a few things. Several questions came to mind as I was preparing this sermon, and I'm going to go through them. First, does this passage limit what believers are to pray for? Did that ever come to your mind? In other words, are we supposed to pray only for things that pertain to the church's mission to spread the gospel, make disciples, and so on? Because if you stick to this text in this context, that's the idea that you'd get because it is pertinent to that. The context doesn't let it really go beyond that. So does this particular passage bind us up and show us what we're to actually pray for and we're not to spend time praying for anything else? Of course not. Of course not. And I may have answered this in a way earlier there are many passages that instruct believers to bring various types of petitions before the Lord. For instance, in Hebrews 4:15 to 16, we are instructed to bring our weaknesses to the very throne of grace. And Spurgeon called the cross the throne of grace. Amen. I mean, there's just a multitude of passages that instruct us to pray in a number of ways. In fact, the Apostle Paul even said, pray without ceasing. Did he mean pray about the mission of the church without ceasing? No. No, he didn't restrict it. As believers, we can pray for just about anything. I mean, why would I say just about anything? As believers, we can literally pray for everything. doesn't mean that our prayers are going to be answered in the affirmative, but we can pray for everything, anything and everything. But we mustn't forget that the Lord answers prayers that are offered in faith. We mustn't forget that the Lord answers prayers that are offered in accordance with the will of God. We mustn't forget that the Lord answers prayers that are offered in His name in a way that is consistent with His person and work. I really like what Barnes wrote, Albert Barnes, great uh, commentator. He says, this promise, and he's speaking of the 13 and 14, verse 13 and 14, this promise referred particularly to the apostles in their work of spreading the gospel, right? He's, he's, tying it to, he's tying it to the context, and then he says, it is, however, true of all Christians 
if what they ask is in faith and according to the will of God. So now he kind of broadens it out. He's saying that, yes, it applies to petitions that have to do with ministry, and it can go beyond that, provided that Christians are asking in faith, believing that God can do what they're asking, and that what they're asking for is in accordance with God's will, God's purposes. To me, the easiest way to understand God's will and purposes is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's broader than that. So, the first question, what? Does this verse restrict what we're to pray for? The answer is no. But don't forget what kind of prayer and the attitude behind it that Jesus actually responds positively to. Second, it's broader than that, right? Second, are we supposed to pray in a way that is consistent with the person and work of Jesus in His name only when we are praying for ministry-related stuff or do we do it when we pray for other things as well? Again, the context kind of restricts what we're looking at. So one could interpret this to say that, well, I only need to pray in Jesus' name when I'm talking about the mission, when I'm talking about whatever I need to advance His mission, with the exception of supernatural power. He's not going to give me that to perform miracles. That day's over. Well, I will tell you this. This rule applies to all prayer. It's broad. All of, all of every prayer, all prayer of believers is to be offered in Jesus' name in a way that is consistent with His person and work. Period. Not just stuff that's related to ministry, not ministerial prayer. All prayer. Every prayer is to be offered to the Father in Jesus' name. And if we pray in a way that is inconsistent with who Jesus is, inconsistent with what He did, and inconsistent with what He is currently doing, we shouldn't expect Him to answer in the affirmative. And this is where we have to ponder maybe why so many of our prayers go unanswered, which usually means God is not going to answer it yet, or He has and declined it. He is, he's not answered in the affirmative. Could it be that the reason why some of our prayers are not answered in the affirmative is because they are not consistent with the person and work of Jesus Christ? I would, have to, I would just venture to say, not necessarily for you, but for me, that's probably one of the primary reasons why so many of my prayers go unanswered or are declined. Because I'm not considering who Jesus is, what He's done for me, or what He's doing on earth as I'm praying, or as I'm living my daily life. I'm thinking about me. Could it be that the reason why some of our prayers are not answered in the affirmative is because we don't really believe God can do what we are asking for, or because what we want is outside of His will? And I would say that's an equally big thing right there. So much of what we pray for is outside of His will will. It's according to our will and what we want and what we desire, but not necessarily in accordance with what He wants and desires. This happens. Could it be that the reason why some of our prayers are not answered in the affirmative is because we got the wrong motives? 
Do you know what James 4.3 says? When you ask, speaking of prayer, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. God's not interested in your pleasures. He's not going to answer in the affirmative every time you're praying for something that will bring you comfort, ease, or pleasure. I mean, that's just a clear warning in James. I think the people that he wrote to were wondering, why are so many of our darn prayers not being answered? Because you keep praying for a camel with spinners. He doesn't want to give you a camel with spinners. He doesn't want to give you a fancy car. He wants you to get your head out of the sand and get on mission. So much of what we pray for is just me or the person next to me. I'm... I'm Mad at myself. Could it be that the reason why our prayers go unanswered or they're not answered in the affirmative is because we're just praying all the time with the wrong motives? Because we're selfish. We're selfishly seeking what we want. You know, it is completely possible to do this when you're in a scenario where you have a loved one who is dying because you can't imagine living without that person. And so you pray selfishly every time you pray, save that, heal that person, heal that person, heal that person. If the Lord were to ask you why, would you say because I just really want them to be healed or would you say because it hurts? Because that's the honest answer. Because we don't like the way it makes us feel when we're facing someone else's immortality or the implications of the passing of that and how it's going to impact other people and children and everything. We pray selfishly almost every time we pray. Even when it has to do with someone else's welfare, somehow we're tied to that because it's going to bring us relief if that person isn't suffering. I stop praying for people to be healed in that way. I pray that they come to know Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. Because that's mission! There's so many people that we meet or know don't know the Lord. The majority of people that we rub shoulders with out there, elbows with, don't know the Lord. They need to know the Lord. We mustn't forget that that the promise of answered prayer in our text is tied to the cause of Christ, which is what all believers, including myself, should be most concerned with and focused on. That's the truth. I love what Ian Murray wrote. I found this in a book I was reading last night about evangelicalism in America, where it started and how it kind of started to unwind, and this all took place up into the 1850s. This is a historical book about early Christianity in America. He says this, and it's just like I'm, I'm reading this book and I, I'm not thinking about the sermon. The sermon's done. I, Rachel sees me in there writing again at 10 o'clock at night. She's like, what the heck are you doing? Leave it alone. And I found this. It says, prayer that throws believers in heartfelt need on God with true concern for the salvation of sinners will not go unanswered. That had to be added right here. That's, that's delicious. 
So second, are we supposed to pray in a way that is consistent with who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's doing for all prayer or just mission? All prayer, all prayer, even when you're praying for someone who's sick, dying, whatever, you pray in a way that is consistent. Third, what do we pray for the most? Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Do we pray for Jesus' cause or do we pray for worldly cares? You know, someone once said that, you know, your checkbook will reveal, you know, what you actually treasure and where your real devotion is. There's a lot of truth to that statement, but I would say this in an equal fashion. Our prayer life reveals what we are primarily focused on. We spend a lot of time praying for our needs. We are primarily focused on us. If we spend a lot of time praying for other believers to be sanctified and unbelievers to be saved, we are primarily focused on Jesus' cause. Period. If the early church had bogged itself down with worldly cares like believers do today, would the gospel have even made it out of Israel? Well, yeah, God is sovereign, but it's still a provocative thing to think about. The early church was not bogged down by self-interest, clearly, as we studied Acts years ago. And the American church is living out the American dream rather than the call of the mission. Sick. I'm astonished by the amount of stuff I have in my life and that I pray for that just literally has nothing to do with the cause of Christ. Completely unrelated. We aren't supposed to compartmentalize our lives and keep the cause of Christ in a silo that we visit from time to time. We are to make the most of every opportunity for Jesus. Why? Because the days are evil. Ephesians 5.16, we are to live our commission above all other things. That's what it means to be a disciple, to live our commission, to live our commission. What do we pray for the most? Ask yourself that, because that reveals what you're focused on. Fourth, I thought, yeah, why not? If we are in the habit, if we are already in the habit of tacking in Jesus' name onto the end of our prayer, should we stop doing it? Right? Because everyone thinks that's the key. No, we shouldn't stop doing it, especially since we now know what it means. We should do it more. And maybe you do pray and you never tack Jesus' name on there. Well, since you didn't know what it meant, good for you. But now you know what it means to pray in His name, right? When we pray in Jesus' name, we are affirming His person, His power, His work, and we are declaring our dependency on Him. Be thinking about who Jesus is. Be thinking about who He is and what He did for you and what He is doing on earth as you close your prayers with this bold statement, in Jesus' name. There is power in only one name, and it ain't Allah. 
It's the name that is above all names. The name of Jesus. Pray in His name and know what you're doing when you do it. So if you are in the habit of doing that, great. Now you really know what it means. Keep doing it. And lastly, fifth, do we realize how privileged we are to be able to pray to the Father at all, especially in Jesus' name? Do we realize how privileged we are to be able to do what Jesus has invited us to do here? His people. Albert Barnes again, no privilege is greater than that of approaching God in the name of His Son. If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, you've been born again, do not fail to take advantage of this great privilege. Come to your heavenly Father through prayer and come to Him often and remember to come to Him in Jesus' name and do not forget what Jesus promised in this text. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it.